This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of March 6th, 2023, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. A few blocks from IBJ headquarters here on Monument Circle, the Indiana General Assembly has reached the midpoint of its 2023 legislative session, making new laws for you and me. Our elected representatives just passed some deadlines for advancing bills, which has pushed at least two-thirds of them back to the curb, at least for this session. So this is a great time to take stock of the bills that made the cut and those that tanked. As usual, education funding has been at the center of major debate. Lawmakers are also hip-deep in social issues, such as so-called ESG investing, and potential bans on library books some people believe are inappropriate for minors. The legislature also loves to trumpet its efforts to make the state more business-friendly, and different ways to additionally lower business taxes have been under discussion this year. For this week's edition of the IBJ Podcast, I'm going to turn the discussion over to our experts. Managing Editor Greg Weaver, who's been covering state government for decades, and IBJ State House reporter Peter Blanchard. And as you'll hear in a moment, they have a special guest to help flesh out the conversation about where major legislation stands at the midpoint of the session. Here's their conversation. Welcome, everyone, to the IBJ podcast. I'm Greg Weaver managing editor of the Indianapolis Business Journal, and today we're going to try to bring listeners up to speed on where major legislation stands at the midpoint of this year's Indiana General Assembly. And to help me do that today are the real experts, IBJ's Statehouse and Economic Development reporter, Peter Blanchard. Welcome, Peter. Welcome, Greg. Thanks. And Casey Smith, a reporter for the Indiana Capital Chronicle, a new nonprofit news site whose work you will often see in the IBJ. Thanks for joining us, Casey. Yeah, thank you. So. This year is a budget year for the legislature. Every two years, lawmakers must craft a new state budget. So much of the discussion this year centers on financial matters. And because about half the state's general fund spending goes to K through 12 schools, education receives a big spotlight. So let's kick things off by talking about education funding. The uh, House approved budget increases uh, for K through 12 spending of about 11% or $1.6 billion. And now the budget bill moves over to the Senate for consideration. Peter, I was just wondering uh, what your thoughts are about how likely um, that spending level is likely to be maintained by the Senate. Uh, is there general agreement on that at this point? Uh, so I, I think there is. You know, I think the Senate generally, you know, is in agreement that, you know, about half the state's budget needs to go through. K through 12 education. And, you know, the only uh, disagreement I think is going to be of how much of that money should go to uh, the state's voucher program. Currently under the House Republicans budget, about one third of the budget would go uh, to vouchers. And that is, I think, more than maybe some Senate Republicans would want. Uh, notably, uh, you know, State Senator Ryan Mishler, who uh, chairs the um, Appropriations Committee you know, came out and said, you know, he was upset with uh, the voucher system um, because of a personal experience he had with his own uh, student in a charter school. So it'll be interesting. I think generally they agree on the big number on how much to give education, but as far as how much goes to the voucher program, 
that kind of remains to be seen. Okay. Well, Casey, maybe you can weigh in a little bit on like, um, maybe explain the voucher program a little bit for folks and kind of explain like, what is that issue, particularly in regards to um, Senator Mitchler's concerns? Yeah. So with the vouchers, so Indiana has one of the broadest kind of expansive voucher programs in the country already. Um, And every year we come back to the General Assembly when they come back in session and their efforts to kind of grow the the voucher program even more. Um, And so kind of how it works in Indiana is a school can become a voucher school um, and essentially parents, families, Right now, there are, there are eight what we call pathways, um, and students have to meet one of those eight pathways in order to qualify for a voucher. They're various. Um, they also have to meet, um, their family has to meet um, an income threshold. So right now, that's 300% of the federal income level for students to receive free or reduced lunch. So, and, and voucher schools are typically like private schools? They, and- they are. They're, they're pretty much private schools. So what's been proposed, we knew when we came back into the session this year, lots of conversations with lawmakers before we came back, we knew there was going to be another effort to kind of expand the program even more. When the House uh, Republicans came out with their budget a couple weeks ago, I think some were surprised by how much of an expansion they've got going here. So what they've done, what they've proposed is said, we're going to take those eight pathways away. So all already right there, you've opened up the doors for a lot of students to to qualify who may not have before. Additionally, they've increased that income ceiling for families up to 400% of the free and reduced level for students right now. So what that kind of equates to is a family of four, as long as you make less than roughly $220,000 a year, your child or children would qualify for those vouchers. And you can then send your kid to you know, one of these voucher schools to, you know, pretty much a a private school of your choosing. So there's been obviously some pushback from Senator Mishler. He had his kind of scathing letter that came out last month. It did not name the school by name, a school up in northern Indiana, however, a, a private Catholic school. He kind of admonished its disclosure, full disclosure, his son does attend that school. Um, so take that for for what you will. But he has been pretty persistent. He said that even before this session, that he wants to see more guardrails for voucher schools. There's been a lot of criticism before that these voucher schools, a lot of state dollars end up going to them, but there isn't a lot of uh, accountability or transparency there. He wants to see more of that regardless. He's also said, um, however, since his his letter came out, that he doesn't want to see the state spend more money than it already is on, on the voucher program. It's not surprising that in the House budget, there is this really wide expansion of the vouchers, typically when the budget gets kicked back over to the Senate, they rein things in a little bit. We've also heard that from Senator Bray, Senate Pro Tem Bray. Uh, he's kind of indicated that they're going to take a, a really close look at what to do with vouchers. So I think we'll see some reining in there. I, I don't know. Obviously, they're, they have the next month to discuss what they want to do, but lots of discussions, I think. I think it, Peter's right. That's going to be in terms of the budget, Republicans in, in both the House and, and Senate caucuses, that's one thing they, you know, if they're going to disagree on something and they're going to have some contention, it's probably going to be over that voucher program. So, uh, but putting the voucher issue aside, do you think that the funding level, uh, you know, an increase of about 11% over two years is probably something that, that both houses uh, of the General Assembly will agree on? I think they're definitely going to agree, agree on an increase. I, I think that's also going to be one of the 
discussion points is, well, how much of an increase and, and where does that increase go? When they're, they're boasting this 11%, which is great. You know, schools, school folks I've talked to, they're, they're very happy to see increases, um, especially when you consider inflation and rising costs across the board for schools. And we heard a lot this summer in study committees about increasing costs to, to educate children who have d- disabilities or they, they need special education resources or they're English learners. Their schools are saying, hey, we, we're racking up costs over here. That being said, the way that the state funds schools, they've, they've got this base funding for students and we're seeing an increase in the base. Um, it's, it's not quite as much as I think folks had wanted and, and there are questions about how far that's going to go when you look at these these other strings attached there with, you know, the vouchers and with kind of a, this unfunded mandate with textbooks that I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about. I think there are going to be some some very in-depth discussions in the Senate um, and, and a lot of testimony come in there about from schools and, and from those folks about, you know, we're talking about this 11 percent, but it, it, it's not going quite as far as it, it may seem. Right. Well, Peter, I'm guessing that another factor that may come into play in the budget discussion is the economic forecast uh, and the revenue forecast that'll be released just before the end of the session. How do you think that might play out uh, in terms of the impact on school funding and on funding for for nearly everything? Well, uh, it's interesting because um, the you know the Office of Management and Budget came out with its um, revenue projections for this year recently, and you know they were predicting sort of a a very mild downturn in the beginning of the year, and then things would start to pick up. I think with the latest revenue projections, we're already kind of seeing that it's um, exceeding expectations. And, you know, maybe fears of a recession were overblown. It's kind of impossible to predict at this point. But I do think that if if the April forecast is in any way showing uh, any sort of, you know, decline or predicting um, an economic downturn, you know, Republicans are, are very cognizant of that. Fiscal conservatives uh, in the Indiana legislature are, are really, you know, conscious of, of how much they're spending. You know, as you know, they they we we have a huge surplus in the state, and Republicans are are very reticent to even bond out certain projects. And you know, they're they're very intent on paying down the state's teachers' retirement fund and and getting rid of that obligation as quickly as possible. So. Uh, so I do think that, uh, you know, a lot is going to depend on that forecast. And, you know, again, if there's even a, a sort of an inkling of maybe a slowdown or stagnation in the economy, you're going to see Republicans a lot less willing to, you know, to increase funding levels to the levels that maybe some folks want. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I think we're all a little jittery about looking forward and, and trying to determine how the economy is going to you know, what's going to happen with it in the, in the next uh, few months. Well, the other education funding issue that has been uh, receiving some attention of late, thanks to some of your coverage, Casey, is the funding for textbooks, which it appears that the, the budget essentially created an unfunded mandate telling schools to provide free textbooks, but not giving them any funding to do so. Tell us a little bit about how you came to learn that that was the case and what may be the response to that. Yeah. So, you know, when Governor Holcomb first came out several months ago and he went over his legislative priorities, that's where we started first hearing about, you know, hey, we're one of seven states that still allows students and their families in K through 12 to be charged for textbooks. We got to stop this. So when the House budget came out, you're you're inundated with all of these these big uh, 
these big points. And so uh, spent the last you know couple of weeks now kind of digging down into the budget itself. It had been discussed by uh, House GOP leadership that, yep, you know, we're going to make sure that students and their families are not charged any longer for textbooks. Um, when you look at the budget, however, the way that they've kind of cobbled this together as as proposed right now, the budget prohibits K through 12 public and charter, which and charter schools are public schools, but public and charter schools is what it says from charging families for textbooks. However, schools are right now responsible for using these dollars that the state gives them and these, you know, the increase in, in the dollars that schools are getting, they're being expected to use that to offset the costs of those textbooks. So it's not like the state is saying, okay, no more textbook fees. Here's, you know, the the hundred and sixty million dollars that the state's gonna need to pay for that, and we're gonna distribute it out to the schools. That's not how they're doing it. They're saying it's tied into this increase that schools are getting in their funding already. I've talked to some folks about, you know, their thoughts on that. Obviously, there's a a big preference to instead go with what Governor Holcomb proposed, which was have a separate line item with that $160 million there. Um, The state already does spend a lot of money on textbook reimbursement. Right now, if you are a student who gets free or reduced lunch, you can qualify for textbook reimbursement. Um, so the state's not looking to spend that much more than what it spends already, but it's now on the schools to pull from their um, their funds. And so, you know, folks that I've talked to have said, well, that means that schools may, you know, decide to not cycle textbooks and get new textbooks in as often. That's That means that schools are, you know, they're going to have to pull that textbook money from the same funds where they decide to uh, pay for student programming or to implement teacher uh, raises. And something that is not in the budget right now is a, any sort of requirement for teacher uh, salaries to increase. That's been a big push for for years in the state now is to increase those salaries. And so when you factor in, you know, like I was talking about earlier, schools are, are raising alarms about inflation's really hitting us. And we have these increased costs for students with different needs um, and the complexity funding that schools usually pull from to pay for those those extra costs, that's not going up as much as folks in the education community had asked for. So this is just kind of another expense for schools. Again, this is the House proposed budget. This this is expected to be another discussion point in the Senate. Um, and it sounds like the Senate is maybe considering a different route. I don't know what that route is, but they are looking, I've been told, at other avenues for getting textbooks paid for. I think that will happen in the session. I don't think Hoosier families K-12 through are going to have those textbook fees anymore, but I it's a question of who, who will pay for them still. Right, right. Some other issues that have been coming up this session uh, are issues, kind of some of these hot button uh, social issues, which uh, legislative leaders at the beginning of the session indicated that we probably wouldn't see that many of those. But, but we've seen quite a few, it seems, uh, over the course of the last few weeks. One of those uh, issues is called ESG investing. And it has to do with investing that takes into account uh, environmental, social, and uh, corporate governance concerns. And so there's an effort to prevent the state pension funds from being invested uh, solely on, uh, for those reasons. So, Peter, you've been following this issue for a while. Just tell us where things stand with that propose, you know, those proposals right now and what you see happening over the course of the next few weeks. Sure. So... I think it's important to rewind a little bit. So at the start of session, you had uh, a bill introduced on the Senate side from Senator Travis Holdman, 
who's very influential. He chairs uh, the Senate Tax and Fiscal Policy Committee. Uh, He presented Senate Bill 292, which basically just says the Board of Trustees of the Indiana Public Retirement System has to make investment decisions based primarily on the rate of return for investors, for people who have their money in the pension system. Now, under state law, they're already required to do that. This is basically just codifying stronger language, uh, indicating that this is how INPERS needs to operate. And, and that bill sailed pretty easily through, uh, through the Senate and wasn't expected to have much of a financial impact on the state. On the other side, on the House, you had a bill from Representative Ethan Manning that essentially had, it had some stronger language and fiscal analysts took a look at it and said, you know, if this bill passes as it's written, uh, it's going to result in a $6.7 billion loss for the state's pension fund over the next decade, just a, a huge scary number. So, you know, Representative Manning came back and introduced an amendment to his bill um, that essentially exempted private equity managers like like Vanguard and BlackRock and these big firms that institutions that handle a, a huge amount of money uh, around the state and the country and around the world and essentially exempted them from from some of these requirements in the bill. So it significantly um, pared down the language in the bill. And now it's really only expected to have about a $5 million impact over the next decade, which when you consider um, that there's about $45 billion in the Indiana public retirement systems uh, account right now, uh, it, you know, it's really a, um, a trivial number. But this is this all kind of uh, derived from a movement nationally, um, you know, in the past year or two, you know, you've had a lot of Republican politicians coming out against, you know, these big pension managers like Vanguard and BlackRock, who uh, notably, some of their CEOs have come out and said, listen, you know, our, our investors, they like these ESG policies. They want to um, use their, uh, you know, their influence to uh, push certain policies on, on the private sector. And uh, so you've had a number of states like Texas and West Virginia do this, where they've required their public retirement system, the, the folks that are managing those, uh, not to divest from certain in, uh, industries like fossil fuels and firearms. But, you know, a lot of the reason that some of these industries are, are waning is because we're, we're getting away from fossil fuels, right? So um, there's sort of a disagreement over whether uh, firms are, are, are making these divestments because, you know, they're taking a sort of political stance or are they just responding to market factors? And so I think the latter side, I think you have Democrats sort of, uh, you know, arguing that um, this, this doesn't, this change really doesn't need to happen. But uh, nevertheless, uh, Representative Manning's bill in the House passed under the amended version, and there's also Senator Holdman's bill in the Senate. So I think in the second half of session, what you're going to see is both chambers try to look at both bills and see what works out of both. Um, but I think ultimately they're going to to pass something. But as far as how inf- impactful the actual legislation would be, um, it seems like any effect will be minimal. Yeah. So, I mean, it sort of looks like they're going to do something to please their constituents politically on the Republican side, but not to the point that it's going to endanger the the state budget. Right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, well, and then, I mean, there are a number of other social issues that have been cropping up as well. And so I know, Casey, I think you've been writing about the uh, the proposed ways to ban inappropriate material in the classroom and in school libraries. Can you talk a little bit about where where that debate 
is at this point. Yeah, so this is a bill that we've seen uh, the past few sessions, actually, all from Senator Tomes, um, Republican Senator Tomes. He's brought it back again this year, Senate Bill 12. And currently in state law, schools, school libraries, they cannot have books or materials that are harmful or obscene for minors. So that's already in state law. Like, you should not be, it's, you know, it's against the law for a school library to carry, you know, a pornographic magazine, for example. But that's not really what's in contention with with this bill. So what this bill is laying out is uh, more of a framework for parents who have testified in committee and said, hey, you know what? We don't like some of these books that are in our, our students, their school libraries. And the type of books that they're talking about range from books that it cover anything from sex education to gender identity. It it varies. We've heard a lot of testimony, but the examples that we've actually actually seen tangibly are, are limited. Um, but there's been a lot of rhetoric about these books. So essentially what the bill says is parents who think that a book is, quote, inappropriate, have more of a framework to go to the school board and petition to have that book removed from the school library. This is not very far off from what parents can do already. Um, however, what the bill also does is says that teachers, school librarians, school employees, and this is broad, I think we're going to have to see some tinkering on the language here, those who at the school are responsible for putting something like this on a shelf, they could be liable criminally and they could face a felony. Um, and they cannot, say, use the education defense in court. So that's also a big change. This has been a contentious bill since it was first brought up. It continues to be a very hot-button topic now. Um, the bill's moving. It moved out of the Senate in the, in the form that it did. So it's headed to the House where typically things can maybe go off the rails even more, I guess some would say. But So we'll, we'll see what happens there. Yeah. Were you surprised to see it come out of the Senate, which tends to often be sort of the more moderate uh, voice of the two chambers? You know, yes, but also the when the bill came up in committee, it, it was a very disorganized committee meeting. I'll say that. I, I was in there for it. The senators who were on that committee, they were throwing amendments around on the table, literally across the table, not fully understanding what they did, taking votes on amendments, where some of the senators didn't even seem to, you know, fully comprehend the language. And by the end, Senator Tomes, who's the bill author, I mean, he's been fairly open that he doesn't even love the version of the bill as it stands now. Now, I think his reason for not loving the bill is it doesn't go as far as he originally intended. Other senators, even Republican senators, think it goes too far. And we saw some Republican senators vote against it on the floor this week. Obviously not enough to stop it from moving, but there is not complete consensus on what to do about these inappropriate materials uh, in school libraries, it seems. Yeah. Well, and then the, the other kind of touchy subject that we've seen debated so far this session is kind of how to deal with young students who may come out as trans uh, and, you know, may confide in uh, a teacher and how the teacher should like respond to that. Can you talk a little bit about that, what that legislation does uh, and where things, where things are? Yeah, so House Bill 1608, authored by Representative Davis, the original version of that bill was a little bit more specific in what it sought to bar teachers from teaching about in the classroom, grades K through three. 
it was amended. And so now the way that the language in the bill stands is that teachers cannot instruct. And there's been a lot of emphasis on the instruction portion of the language here. So there cannot be instruction for students in grades K through three on anything regarding, quote, human sexuality. Now, that is broad. There have been questions about what that actually entails and what it does not. The other portion of that bill that's kind of got some people really upset um, is language that says that a student, grades K through three right now, who wants to either change their name, their title, their, their pronoun, first off, they cannot do so unless their parent writes into the school in writing and says, my child wants to be called whatever it might be. Yeah. Additionally, if that child comes forward and their parents don't know that they've made this request, the school is required to go to that child's parent and say, you're, you know, hello, your, your child has requested to change their name, their title, their pronoun. The parents are required to be notified. So a lot of folks who oppose the bill have said, you're outing trans kids with this. And more broadly, you're, you're limiting education for students. But Again, it's K through through right now. As of right now, Indiana typically doesn't start sex education until fourth, fifth, sixth grade. So in that regard, it's probably not changing much on the, much on the, the sex ed- education front. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's such a complicated issue because, I mean, as a parent, you probably would, I, I think you would want to know if you didn't right. know. And as a teacher, you have to make a hard choice now anyway, about whether to disclose to the parents or not. Uh, and so it seems, I don't know, it just seems so complex. Uh, yeah. It's one of the, you know, we hear a lot uh, about Republicans in Indiana, especially want to focus on parental rights. And so this is one of those bills that it's a little confusing where the parental rights begin and where they end. And then, you know, more largely too, there have been questions in the legislature about where do student rights begin and end. And um, in the classroom and, and and stuff like that. So there are folks on both sides of this issue on that parental rights component with this bill about, you know, my right as a parent should be, I may want to know what, what my child, especially my younger child, what's going on with them at school. I, I don't know about it. You know, I should be informed. On the, the other end of that, though, parents are saying, if my child wants to be called something different in, in class, because by the way, in, in the bill right now, a teacher cannot be you know, forced or required to to still call that child by whatever different name or or pronoun they've they've requested, even after it's been put in writing, teachers still cannot be forced to do so. And so parents are saying, hey, you know what? But what about my rights of I've told you, you know, I've told you the school, this is what I want my child to go by. Why aren't you doing it? So that that debate continues there also. Okay. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm, with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ podcast and our conversation between IBJ political experts Greg Weaver and Peter Blanchard and Casey Smith of the Indiana Capital Chronicle. I think we should also spend some time talking about business since we are the Indianapolis Business Journal, right? 
and uh, particularly uh, talking about uh, a bill that I think has already become law that um, provides uh, some relief for small, particularly small businesses. Peter, can you ex- explain that bill a little bit? Right. And this, uh, that's true. This is the only, uh, as far as I know, this is the only bill that's been signed into the law uh, by Governor Holcomb at this point during session, you know, widely popular across uh, partisan lines. And that's Senate Bill 2, uh, which, you know, essentially allows business owners who pay their own individual taxes. So these are people who maybe own um, LLCs and, and S-Corps and that sort of thing. They, they pay their own income taxes. Uh, so business owners can already receive a, a deduction um, for their state tax payments. Um, but what this Senate Bill 2 does is it uh, makes the federal deduction unlimited. And so the, the fiscal analysis of this bill basically says that, you know, this isn't going to have any impact on, on state revenues. Um, you know, this is, uh, this is a, a federal deduction, but the bill really uh, expands the relief for, for small and medium-sized business owners. Um, and so for that reason, it's been very popular and, uh, you know, estimates are anywhere from 50 to $100 million in savings that um, deep business owners are, are going to see um, as a result of this bill. And, um, you know, another thing worth mentioning, I think, is, um, you know, something like 29 states already have this provision in their law. So, you know, it's, it's widely popular and, uh, you know, passed pretty breezily through uh, both chambers. Yeah, and quickly signed. Yes, very yes. quickly. Yes. <laughs> it's uh, It seems rare, I think, to see a bill move that quickly and be signed that quickly into law during during a legislative session. So the fact that we're just now at the midpoint and it's already been uh, uh, signed into law uh, speaks to its uh, popularity, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the other kind of business issue that, that both of you have uh, spent some time covering is uh, speed limits for trucks, which, uh, you know, are... Uh, have a reduced speed limit uh, on some portions of interstates across the state. And independent truck drivers have been pushing for an increase or to have parity uh, with cars for quite some time. And then I guess it looks like maybe this is the best chance it's ever had of actually becoming law, right? Yeah, which is which is pretty surprising. You know, as Casey knows, she's covered previous sessions. This is a bill, um, at least on the Senate side, introduced by uh, our friend Senator Tomes, who we mentioned earlier. Uh, he's he's introduced this in the Senate for the past uh, past couple of years. Uh, he's a longtime trucker uh, from the Evansville area, um, so this is a big thing for him. And uh, you also have Representative Mike Aylesworth on the House side, who has also had an identical bill that he's proposed the, the last couple of years. And you know, I, I wrote a story about this issue um, maybe a month or two ago, uh, as the session was just getting underway, and um, it really seemed like this bill wasn't going to go anywhere again. Uh, you had both. Uh, the chair of the House uh, Roads Committee and the chair of the Senate Transportation Committee both saying uh, we're not really super keen on, um, you know, uh, advancing this. We don't see a reason to change uh, what the law already is. So it was a surprise to see that uh, Senator Tomes's bill uh, got a hearing in Senate Roads and Transportation. Um, it passed uh, seven to two. And as you mentioned, this has been pushed by independent truckers who uh, want the speed limit for trucks to be the same as cars. So, you know, if you're driving on a, a, a highway um, outside, a, outside a city like Indianapolis, you might notice that the trucks have a reduced speed of 65 miles an hour, while cars have 70. This would ev- effectively make a uniform speed limit so cars and trucks um, could both go uh, 70 miles an hour. And the reason this has stalled the past couple of years is because you have 
major opposition from the Indiana Motor Truck Association, which is on the state's uh, largest group uh, representing uh, the trucking industry. You know, they've argued that this isn't going to make roads safer. Um, there's no need to change this. Um, but then you have independent independent truckers saying, actually, this would make roads safer um, because you wouldn't have trucks going at a slower speed. And, you know, that increases the risk for, you know, cars to rear end trucks. Um, and so there's arguments on both sides for whether or not this actually uh, makes roads safer. But it does appear like this may be the year for that bill. Case you have any insights into the House, what they may do? Well, you know, I talked to Representative Aylesworth before the session or at, at the start of the session. Um, he did not seem very confident about this bill. I mean, he had brought this bill six or seven sessions before this. I mean, he's been trying for a long time on this one. And he said, I mean, and it's it's barely I, I to be honest, I have to go back and look. I don't think it's even ever gotten a committee hearing. And he said it was because the Motor Truck Association has been so opposed to it. Senator Tomes did not comment to me about this bill before uh, it came up in committee, but he is a ranking member on that Senate Transportation Committee. So the indication was that if it did come up, it, it was probably going to get the votes. And so sure enough, that's what happened. Like Peter said, the Motor Truck Association continues to be opposed. What was interesting in committee, I thought, though, um, so some represented, a, rep a representative from NDOT did come to the committee. She did not take a specific, I, I did not hear her say that she took a specific stance on the bill, but she gave a, a, a statistic, and I, I don't remember the number specifically, but she said the state was going to save millions of dollars a year if this bill were to go into effect um, because they were going to save on, I believe if I'm recalling correctly, you know, crash cleanups um, and such. I have not fully vetted that claim. I thought that was interesting. On the House side, I question if the bill will actually get a hearing in the committee on the House side. Um, the House has been pretty firm, according to Representative Aylesworth, um, that if the Motor Truck Association is opposed to the bill, they don't want to touch it. I will say, though, senators on the on the Senate side, they seemed pretty content with the revelation, I guess, that, well, you know, if trucking, if a trucking company doesn't want their trucks going over the 65 mile per hour speed limit still, um, they can set their trucks to the point where they can't go over 65 miles per hour. And so senators felt pretty confident with that. They said, well, you know, if you don't want your truck going 70, your trucks don't have to go 70. Um, and if you're an independent person and you want to be able to do 70, Senator Tome said, well, you know, these, a lot of these trucks are on the interstate and they're already going 80 miles per hour. So this isn't really going to change much then. Again, it, it's, it's to be seen what the, the House committee will do. But if, if this bill was going to have a chance in a session, this is probably going to be it. So we'll see what happens on the House side. Yeah, well, that'll be really interesting to watch, I think. So, well, the other business, I think, that had uh, some big hopes at the beginning of the session was the casino industry. And uh, it had hopes of uh, being able to see online uh, casinos legalized in, in the state of Indiana. Uh, and the same with the Hoosier Lottery. It was also hoping to be able to offer games uh, online. But both of those things look to be pretty imperiled, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Uh, is that what you're seeing, Peter? Yeah, uh, I, I think you're correct. You know, um, I was talking to um, a lobbyist for the casino industry um, earlier this week, and, you know, I asked him, you know, does this essentially mean that um, these proposals are dead? And he said, you know, it's the legislature, anything can happen. And, you know, there could be an amendment that sneaks up on a bill and that would sort of authorize these things. But with such a major policy change like this, you typically don't see that in an amendment. That's typically... Um, has its own bill, 
Uh, so really, iGaming seems to be a dead issue this session, um, which as you mentioned, you know, is a little bit surprising. As our listeners know, Indiana, you know, legalized sports betting in 2019. And, you know, there was a lot of hesitancy over that. But um, ultimately, it's been a, a big windfall uh, for the state, um, you know, enjoying millions in tax revenue each year. Essentially, casinos were able to benefit from that because um, these uh, sports platforms like DraftKings and FanDuel had to, their 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 programs were tied to brick and mortar casinos to ensure that uh, casinos wouldn't be sort of left in the dust by this new um, gambling avenue. And so that's essentially what proponents of iGaming were trying to do, trying to allow online casino gaming. And um, it would be the same thing that would be, uh, it would be through brick and mortars that you would you know, get on your phone and, and play a slot machine from the, uh, you know, the Terre Haute Casino or French Lick or whatever, whatever, what have you. But it's interesting. And, and from what I can tell, from what I've read and uh, from folks I've spoken to or who are familiar with the legislation, the kind of the, one of the main reasons this stalled was because you had folks who are bar owners or veterans groups, folks who own taverns, they want video game terminals in their establishments. Um, and so, Essentially, they wanted that to be included as part of the iGaming expansion, but that runs up against the casino industry, which says, wait a minute, that's going to cut into our profits. If people can just gamble at these machines, then they won't, you know, then they won't get on their phone and, and do it or whatever. So, so that forced the casino industry and folks who support iGaming to say, okay, let's take a step back because we don't want video game terminals to be a part of this. It's going to, it's going to cut into our revenue stream. And so that bill ultimately didn't even get a hearing. Um, and then there was another bill uh, from Representative Chris Judy that would have made the Hoosier lottery go online. And um, this is something that's been talked about for a couple of years. The lottery actually looked into doing this on their own um, until lawmakers stepped in and said, wait a minute, you're going to have to go through the legislature if you want to do this. And so that bill also failed to gain steam. Um, and I think it's also important to mention that, you know, in the beginning of the year, uh, Senate pro tem Rod Bray came out and said that he's not really too keen on expanding gambling in Indiana this session. And so when you have, you know, the first or second most powerful uh, lawmaker in the legislature saying he doesn't want something, um, there's a good chance that uh, it's probably not going to happen. Yeah. Looks pretty, looks pretty dumb for this session, doesn't it? Yeah. So, well, uh, one last thing I wanted us to talk about before we wrap up is, um, uh, something that uh, all taxpayers might be interested in, and that's uh, this um, potential study uh, on whether to uh, do away with the state's income tax or somehow restructure the state's tax system. Casey, can you talk a little bit about where things are with that right now? There's a study committee proposed, right? There is a study committee proposed, and one of the ideas that's being tossed around is elimination of the state income tax. Again emphasis on <laughs> the bill the bill does not say that we're going to eliminate the income tax it's it's a it's a uh, commission to study that topic um and kind of what's being thought is that well if the state can pay down the pre-96 fund uh the teacher pension fund the liability exactly yeah. if we can get that paid off earlier maybe by 2020 you know by the end of this decade um we're gonna have more state revenue to work with and why don't we not have an income tax. So that's one of the things that they're going to look at. There are other components of this bill too. Um, and as we're moving forward, I think we may see even more added to that bill. One of the things um, in, in terms of taxes that I think we might see 
that commission look at is also property taxes. Um, that's a big topic this session. Emphasis again, though, on if property tax relief, if there's some sort of property tax relief that, that goes through with this budget, it's been made clear that it's not going to affect the tax bills this year. But I think lawmakers are very keen on looking at how they can help alleviate home, you know, give some help to homeowners in the next two years. And so I think we're going to see that issue get merged into that that tax commission as well. But I think the the big thing on lawmakers' mind minds looking farther out is what can we do um, once we get that pre-96 fund uh, taken care of? And I think income tax will be one of the top ideas that, that they want to throw themselves behind. Yeah. Well, Peter, you've spent some time looking at the potential impact of um, you know, doing away with the income tax. What do you see is, is sort of the upside and the downside of, of that? Yeah, so I think you can, you can deduce that from looking at other states that have um, phased out their income tax, um, right? So um, Tennessee does not have a state income tax, but uh, local, localities can have their own um, local income taxes. And that's the situation here in Indiana, right? There's a state income tax, but then um, counties can, um, uh, municipalities can pass a, a local option income tax. Also important to note that, um, you know, Senator Holdman is interested in phasing out the state's income tax, but um, doesn't seem like he's interested in getting rid of the option for uh, municipalities to have their own local income taxes. So in Tennessee, you have, uh, you have local income taxes, and you also have some pretty high uh, sales taxes. Um, depending on where you live in Tennessee, um, you might be paying a double-digit sales tax. And then uh, you also have states like Florida who were able to uh, supplement the uh, elimination of their income tax with a tourism tax because you have, uh, of course, Disney World in Florida and a lot of uh, tourists coming there. So um, that was able to uh, you know, make up for any losses from the income tax. And then I believe... Uh, uh, Ohio has has something like a, uh, a tax on the oil and gas industry. So, you know, I think proponents of it say that, you know, um, if Indiana wants to attract businesses and continue to be a business-friendly state, it needs to get rid of the state income tax that's going to be enticing to both um, businesses and residents um, who maybe want to get out of a high-tax state. Um, you know, and we have seen a lot of, you know, migration from uh, California to Texas, for example you know, a very high tax state to a very low tax state. So, you know, I think the key here is what is Indiana going to replace it with? Because last year, the the state income tax brought in something like $8 billion in revenue. So, you know, I don't see how Indiana replaces that without um, either raising the sales tax or raising the property tax. And, you know, I think if you do do either of those, you'll see that, um, more lower and middle income Hoosiers are going to end up footing a larger portion of, of the bill um, simply because those taxes tend to in, impact those in, in lower tax brackets. So it, it's going to be interesting to see. Um, you know, I think, I think it has a lot of support among the Republican Party. I think you're probably going to see uh, this bill pass to, to form this commission. And again, the big question mark is, you know, what are you going to replace it with? Yeah. So you might get a, you might be able to see uh, an elimination of the uh, income tax, but you're going to end up paying somewhere else down the line, right? That's right. Yeah. So, well, it's going to be really interesting to see how kind of all these issues play out over the next several weeks. So thank you, Peter and Casey, for sharing all of your insights. Um, The legislature has until April 29th to finish its work. 
So be sure to keep up to date by following our legislative coverage at ibj.com, where you'll also find the great work of the Indiana Capitol Chronicle. My thanks again to Greg Weaver, Peter Blanchard, and Casey Smith. And before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories in the latest issue of IBJ I want to bring to your attention. First up, the new headquarters site of Alanco Animal Health is buzzing with construction activity, but not everything at Alanco is quite as upbeat. John Russell reports that revenue has fallen in the last year, and the firm's share price has evaporated by two-thirds in the last 18 months. Also in this week's paper, Susan Orr reports that Indianapolis-based Republic Airways and its flight school have sued dozens of former students the airline says failed to commit to fly with Republic after graduation. And Daniel Bradley outlines the changes in store for three northern suburbs with new mayors on the way. And again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. I will say it is easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on Central Indiana's business community and economy if you're a subscriber. And here is a new development we have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories, columns, and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business. And that works out to just about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana's story told with this kind of breadth and depth anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week. <laughs>